Welcome, everyone, to Creating a Family. Talk about foster, adoptive, and kinship care. I'm Dawn Davenport. I am the host of this show, as well as the director of the nonprofit CreatingAFamily.org. Today, we're going to be talking about advocating for your child with prenatal substance exposure. We'll be talking with Jen Wisdall. She is the Chief Operating Officer at FASD United and the proud parent to three young adults with FASD. Jen leads the FASD United Federal Legislative and Policy Agenda and works with her colleagues to make FASD United the connecting line between lived experience, research, policy, and practice. Welcome, Jen, to Creating a Family. Thanks for having me, Don. Great to be here. So one of the first and probably the most important advocacy that a parent can do for their child is to get a diagnosis. So let's separate FASD, fetal alcohol spectrum disorders, from drug exposure. So let's start with fetal alcohol spectrum disorders, FASD. Why is it important to get a diagnosis of one of the FASDs, one of the disorders associated on the fetal alcohol spectrum? Why is that important? I think understanding, number one, as with any disability, knowing what you're dealing with is half the battle knowing Mm -hmm. what to expect. And we know specifically with FASD, as with some other disabilities, that the way you parent a person with an FASD, the way you interact with, the way you support a person with an FASD is different from how you may traditionally parent or traditionally work with someone. And the earlier we can get a diagnosis of FASD, the more protective factors you have put in place. Mm-hmm. Now, unfortunately, that is kind of difficult because it the majority, <laughs> it is, <laughs> it is, let's just cut through it. It is <laughs> bottom line. Yeah. But additionally, FASD typically isn't diagnosed until a person is older because there is a battery of cognitive testing that they go through that really isn't available unless they have the sentient facial features of FAS, fetal alcohol syndrome. Most people with an FASD don't get diagnosed until between the ages of 10 and 14. That's And that's the norm. Yeah. And is that because it's only at that point that the concerns are growing? Or is it because of the lack of diagnostic facilities and people who are able to diagnose? Or is it both? It's it's a spider web of issues, yeah. quite frankly. It's, you know, a lack of knowledge. Often children will be screened at birth for substances, right? Drugs, right? Yeah. For drugs, mm-hmm. but they won't be screened for alcohol. The conversations might be had with mom or the pregnant parent about substances or drugs, but that conversation won't be had about alcohol. And so it's almost seen as a bit of an afterthought. And then because of a lack of diagnostic capacity. And again, right around grade four, right around the fourth grade is when things turn from concrete to abstract. Yep. We see a lot of people start to struggle. Mm -hmm. Although, you know, we're currently doing a survey of families and people with FASD looking at the education system and where things kind of fell apart. And the vast majority are saying right now preschool. We see it third grade too, second and third grade, because at that point is when the higher level thinking is expected. You're supposed to really around third grade start being able to read for knowledge as opposed to just reading so you can say the words and that you're expected to take the information that you're given in school and apply it. And that's where we see our kiddos 
struggling. So, yep. When you said fourth grade, I was thinking that was a little late. So that's interesting to me. But fourth grade would even be more, more so than, mm-hmm. than yeah. yeah. Fascinating. So with drug exposure, depending on the drug, the child may be born dependent. And so that is something that we can note in the medical records. It's something that we can see. Now, not all children who have been exposed to drugs are going to be born dependent. Some drugs do not cause dependency such as that. And other times, for whatever reason, if the mom has not used the substance, depending on who you talk to, let's say six to eight weeks of delivery, the fetus has gone through withdrawal in utero, and you are not going to necessarily see it. But we also know neonatal abstinence syndrome. So it's obvious for those children. Is it obvious for children who are exposed to alcohol at birth? Not necessarily. Sometimes it can be. Absolutely. If they have the facial features, real clear indicators, but that's only about 10% of the people with an FASD. Right. And and infants, it's really hard for newborns. It is very hard to distinguish between the typical newborn face and a face that is showing the dysmorphology associated with alcohol exposure. Absolutely. It really is. And that's where some of the challenge lies, is that unless you know that there was a history of prenatal alcohol exposure and those conversations were being had prenatally, a lot of times it gets missed. And it's seen too that in our society, because alcohol is legal, it's seen as less than. And with some parents, it's seen as, oh gosh, that's even more shameful if I, which it's not, if I drank during pregnancy than if I use substances because drugs are a disorder, a disease. We still have a lot of stigma that comes with alcohol use and alcohol use disorder. It's fascinating listening to the conversations around that because neither are good for the baby. (laughs) Some of them used (laughs) in combination are even worse, but alcohol typically gets left out of the conversation in lieu of the conversation around drug use or drug exposure because it's easier to find. It's easier to find. And I think you hit the nail on the head when you said, because alcohol is legal, I think that this misconception is fading. However, there has been a misconception in the past that alcohol does not cause the birth defects and long-term learning and behavioral issues that drugs cause. And for our audience, there's a a face full of laughter on the other side of this here. And nothing (laughs) could be further from the truth. It is actually alcohol that causes, as Jen said, none of them are good for a baby. None of them are good for a fetus. However, alcohol causes by far the most significant, which is so interesting. Let me ask you a side question before we come back to the diagnosis. Have you seen or has the research shown that there has been an increase in alcohol use during and since the pandemic? So interestingly, pre-pandemic, the rates of alcohol-exposed pregnancies as reported by the CDC went from one in nine to one in seven, right? So one in seven pregnancies are reported as alcohol exposed, then that's self-reporting. But from there, since the pandemic, what studies have shown is that there was a 41% increase in binge drinking among women of childbearing age. I don't know about you, but I don't know if I'd want to be a kindergarten teacher in the next couple of years, because any amount of alcohol can cause an FASD, including prior to recognition of pregnancy. So, you know, this is the other part we forget. You're out on a girl's weekend 
and there's some binge shrinking happening and you don't know you're pregnant yet, mm-hmm. right? So mm-hmm. this is where FASD can also live and also happen. And as a matter of fact, that's where we see a lot of the alcohol use is in middle-aged, higher socioeconomic status, well-educated white women. That's kind of the the core group that's doing the binge drinking. And so I think we're going to see a lot more of FASD outside of the adoptive foster circle in, in coming years because of that. I think that's such an interesting point. And we do know that well, it depends on who you speak with, what the exact percentage, but on the children that creating a family service, foster, adoptive, and kin, anywhere between 70 and 90% of those children have been prenatally exposed. All right, now let's go back to diagnosing. Okay, so in the U.S., FASD is not a diagnosis. It is an umbrella term that includes a bunch of different diagnoses. Talk to us about what would be included. How do you get a diagnosis and what could you be diagnosed with? And do they align themselves on a spectrum from worst to least worst? You know, and it's interesting, depending on who you talk to about that, there are currently 10 different diagnostic methodologies widely in use in the U.S. So there is no one gold standard for For diagnosing children who are all along the fetal alcohol spectrum. Exactly. Exactly. The one diagnosis that most are aware of is fetal alcohol syndrome. Mm -hmm. And fetal alcohol syndrome, some consider to be the most extreme. However... We also know that people with fetal alcohol syndrome tend to do better long-term than people with other diagnoses on the FASD spectrum, and here's why. People with fetal alcohol syndrome, A, everybody's heard of it, right? That's something you've heard of. B, they have, and sometimes they're very subtle, you'd never even know, but they have facial features. Mm -hmm. So it's something identifiable, right? So in some states, you might be able to qualify for services with fetal alcohol syndrome, but you will not qualify for services with PFAS or alcohol-related neurodevelopmental disorder or neurodevelopmental disorder prenatal alcohol exposed or static encephalopathy alcohol exposed, any of these other diagnoses that are in other countries considered an FASD. But in the U.S., we have separate names for them. And the people who don't look like they have a disability, Mm -hmm. the majority of people with an FASD aren't intellectually disabled. They don't have an intellectual disability. And so they don't qualify for many of the services and supports. But if you were to look at their adaptive function, if you were to look at their executive function, their ability to live and navigate with safety in community, those areas are highly impaired but there's no support because they don't have either the FAS diagnosis or the intellectual disability to accompany it. If you were able to go to a diet, we're going to talk in a minute about where to get a diagnosis, but if you were able to get a diagnosis for any of the things you mentioned, neurobehavioral disorder associated with prenatal alcohol exposure, NDPAE, hang on everybody, you're going to get an onslaught of acronyms here. Alcohol-related neurodevelopmental disorder, ARND, fetal alcohol syndrome, which is FAS, or partial fetal alcohol syndrome, PFAS, and then a whole host of others. If you were able to get a diagnosis of one of those, will it not provide you with school services or other services for your child? No. 
not in most states. And that is part of the challenge because in most states, waiver services, support services are tied to either certain diagnoses or IQ. And so that is a major challenge for our population to be able to get access to services and support. You add to that, you know, FASD occurs at a rate of as many as one in 20 school age children in the U.S., one in 20. That is a child in every classroom. That is a kid on every ball team. It grows up to be a person in every workplace, right? Because Mm -hmm. this doesn't go away with time. Mm -hmm. You don't outgrow FASD. Brain damage, you don't outgrow. And brain damage is what it's called, yes. And the body damage that goes with it too, because anything that's developing along the midline, heart, lungs, endocrine system, those things all tend to be more impacted as the person with FASD ages. Right. So that makes sense. going back to that one in 20 number, that's double the rate of autism in the U.S. Absolutely. And our schools do not have any information about it. If yep. you look at the IEPs, right? So IEPs, you've got your categories under IDEA, all your categories there. FASD is, if it's recognized, it's typically recognized under other health impaired or it's recognized under traumatic brain injury. But there are only a handful of states that are set up to do that. And so really, you're getting an IEP or a 504 for your child based on other things that are going on, typically ADHD. If you can get a dual diagnosis of autism and FASD, you can get that. So it's very similar to neonatal abstinence syndrome in schools. They don't really have the capacity set up to look at how you would support these children through the IEP process. Additionally, some of the typical sticker charts, rewards, things like that don't work for our population. Mm -hmm. That's not the appropriate way of supporting a person with FASD because that cause and effect thinking is impaired. Mm -hmm. So you might have them earning based on good behavior, uh, (laughs) this Mm -hmm. reward at the end of the week, Well, they're just going to be angry at the end of the week when they don't get it because, A, they don't remember why they were earning it, what Mm -hmm. they needed to do to earn it, and they don't have the ability to maybe maintain their posture in the classroom in a way that would allow them to earn it. Exactly. It's a challenge. Yeah. So we know of families who have said to us, it is relatively easy to get a diagnosis of autism. I know my child was exposed. We have every reason to believe the child was exposed. We believe that what we are looking at is some form of fetal alcohol syndrome, probably not FAS, but probably somewhere along the FASD spectrum. And yet, if we get a diagnosis of autism, which my pediatrician can give me, and then I can get all the services I need. So the misdiagnosis, sometimes on purpose and sometimes not on purpose, you can see where they're coming from. The problem, of course, is in it doesn't help us get the data we need to be able to say we need more services for prenatal substance exposed children. Well, and additionally, you know, if you're getting the wrong diagnosis, then you're also getting the incorrect interventions. ABA Mm -hmm. is not recommended for people with an FASD. Mm-hmm. <laughs> so it, it works for some. It does work for some and not not for others. You're right. And not for others. And so this is part of the challenge is that a friend of mine who's an, an FASD mom always gives the analogy of you're putting the wrong glasses prescription on the child mm-hmm. by giving the wrong diagnosis. Yeah. Because the, those correct supports and things aren't in place. And 
Two of my three have prenatal drug exposure. All three of mine have an FASD and they can do great things. They are capable of so much, but having that understanding of how their brain works and how they may look at life differently, not wrong, just different, the memory impairments that may come with what they're doing, you know, the supports that they may need, you know, these are great people. They grow Mm -hmm. into amazing adults, but they need that understanding, awareness, help, and support Mm -hmm. to be able to reach their full potential. And the right diagnosis can help with that. So how should parents go about getting a diagnosis for their child when they suspect that some of the, what they're seeing, the learning challenges, behavior challenges are caused by prenatal? Right now, we're still talking about alcohol exposure. We're going to shift in just a moment talking about drug exposure, but prenatal alcohol switcher. How do we get that diagnosis? Step number one is to make sure that in their records, you can find that there is documentation or knowledge of prenatal alcohol exposure, right? Because unless they have the the face, so meaning the dysmorphic facial features, it is very unlikely that they will be given an FASD diagnosis. So that's one thing is really looking through the records if you're an adoptive parent and seeing if that's noted. If you are with your kiddo in the hospital when they're a newborn, making sure that's noted on their chart that they're asking if alcohol was, you know, if, even prior to recognition of pregnancy, was there alcohol exposure? So it's a medical record you want this information to be included in. And in, in, you know, in some cases, I've heard of clinics accepting also like, you know, grandma witnessed it at a baby shower or, mm-hmm. you know, family information. There was a family where the pregnant mom was pulled over for drinking and driving. So that record could be used, okay. but you do need to have that solid knowledge that there was alcohol exposure. And then talk to your pediatrician, the American Academy of Pediatrics has some great toolkits and trainings out there on FASD and how to how to look at it and how to even diagnose and support. However, in most states, they're going to refer you to a specialty clinic to do that diagnosis. And hopefully your state has one. They don't exist in every state. So there are some that end up crossing borders to get there, mm-hmm. which is, you know, un- unfortunate, <laughs> but the reality of our situation And then uh, depending on the method they use to diagnose, you could either be talking to a geneticist, a developmental pediatrician, you might be looking at a multidisciplinary team, you might be looking at a psychologist, it just really depends on what method they're using to diagnose in your state or in your area. Gotcha. Most pediatricians don't feel comfortable, but developmental pediatricians are clinical geneticists are usually, but not every developmental pediatrician and not every clinical geneticist. The FASD United website does have a list of facilities, so I would recommend going there. And Jen, give us that website www.fasdunited.org. Gotcha. But even more importantly than that, we have a program called our Family Navigation Program. So you can call or email or contact us off the web at any time and request a list of diagnostic clinics. Uh, Let's say your child is 16, 18, and they need a diagnosis. You know, that might be a different list of clinics. So our navigators will go through and find the resources that are available to you in your community and send you a tailored list. And if you need to talk about it, they're all parents and caregivers of people with FASD. 
So if you need some peer support or to have a a more in-depth conversation, that phone line, it's an 800 number and it's open from 9 a.m. Eastern to 10 p.m. Eastern, Monday through Friday. So anywhere in the country, you don't need a referral, just call us, we'll get you the information. Excellent. And support, just knowing you're talking to somebody who gets it, if for nothing else. All right, now let's talk briefly about what diagnoses are available for a child who has prenatal drug exposure, and how does that differ from getting a diagnosis for FASD? Really, they are, you know, considered, although they're often intertwined, two separate things, right? You've got your neonatal absence syndrome, you've got neonatal opioid withdrawal syndrome, NOWS, as they're calling it now, mm-hmm. but most of those diagnoses are made at birth. Most of those are happening in the hospital. They're testing. The majority of those are happening right then and there. And if they're not, then that's something that's usually picked up by a pediatrician later on when those conversations are happening. But we know it is far easier based on the criteria of those diagnoses to get a diagnosis of drug use than it is to get a diagnosis from alcohol use because it's that stigma factor, right? Mm -hmm. It's a known thing and it's something that you can test for as well. Mm -hmm. You know, they they can test for prenatal drug exposure. Even without withdrawal symptoms, they can test Mm -hmm. the meconium or they could test the moms. So you have something physical, which with alcohol, very seldom do you have something physical. Absolutely. And you can test core blood for alcohol, but it's only during a a certain period. You can only, you know, there's limitations to it. And most panels won't run it. They'll run the the drug exposure Mm -hmm. because that's where the priority is. That's where the funding is. Yeah. And again, that is terribly unfortunate. But having a diagnosis of prenatal drug exposure or neonatal abstinence syndrome or neonatal opiate withdrawal, Will that get you any additional services in schools or is it similar to being diagnosed with one of the fetal alcohol spectrum disorders? It is, again, it faces the same challenge that we face with an FASD where it can be more helpful is that you're a lot more likely to get buy-in from the school system if you mention drugs as opposed to alcohol. Because <laughs> backwards, <laughs> think of the reaction, though. I mean, it's, you know, if you're talking to someone in the school system, they're thinking, oh, well, I might have been drinking before I knew I was pregnant or, oh, I go home and drink, you know, like alcohol is so seeped in our society that it's hard to recognize when there's issues from it. It's harder to recognize when there's issues from it when it's something you yourself use, Valid right? Point. Mm-hmm. Yeah, so it can help, but again, it's not listed as any criteria under IDEA. Any of the the drug exposures aren't listed there. They're not, okay. Yeah, no. So it can be a challenge if your state interprets ID, because each state interprets IDEA differently. There's no, you can't go from one state to the other and have it be exactly matching. So how the state interprets IDEA is going to really impact whether you're able to get services for a kiddo with drug exposure or a kiddo with prenatal alcohol exposure. Most of your birth to threes will take a kiddo with that. And you can argue that developmental preschool or the early childhood education provided by the school districts that's governed by IDEA, the school districts are required to find kids. This is through child find, find kids with disabilities. So if you mention that your child has a diagnosis of a disability, 
that is a way in through the preschool route, but it may not follow you through the remainder of their schooling. And IDEA, by the way, means Individuals with Disabilities Education Act, IDEA. Thank you for clarifying, Don. Sorry. <laughs> That's okay. And that is where you would get some of the IEP and the 504. I think actually 504 comes from the... Uh, ADA. Yeah. So that's how you get some of your services from schools. I hope you're enjoying today's conversation with Jen Wisdall on advocating for your child with prenatal substance exposure. If so, could you do us a favor and tell a friend about what you've learned when you listen to this creatingafamily.org podcast? It's what we do and the podcast primarily grows through word of mouth. So please use your mouth to help us grow. Let your friends and family know about this podcast. Thank you. Okay, another opportunity for parents to advocate for their child is in the school system. So what are some of the typical issues a child with prenatal substance exposure to alcohol or drugs, and many of them, there is an and there, they were exposed to both. What are some of the issues they may face in school? Well, some of the issues are hyperactivity. Again, lack of the ability to interpret cause and effect or even natural consequences. That part of the brain can be impacted. So knowing that if I don't do my homework tomorrow, <laughs> or if I don't do my homework or work on this project over time, I'm not going to be done on time. Mm -hmm. So an inability to kind of manage time, manage self, we get a lot of sensory things in our populations. So the need for big muscle movement, the need for energetic play, you know, in one of the diagnoses for FASD, they talk about the child exhibiting attributes of being driven as though by a motor. So they're very, very active, right? And there are some that are and some that aren't. You've met one person with FASD. You've met mm -hmm. one person with FASD or, or prenatal drug exposure. But the high level of activity, some challenges with boundaries, challenges remembering more than one or two step directions, challenges mm -hmm. with memory. So for example, my son, we taught him how to tie his shoes, right? He was in the first grade when we were teaching him how to tie his shoes to go to school. And he'd mastered it and he mastered it at home but couldn't remember how to do it at school because it was contextual learning. And a week later, he forgot how to do it. And we had to teach him all over again, mm -hmm. right? And so gaps in memory, sensory issues, things like that, they're going to need support within school. Some of our kids have very different metabolisms. They get hangry a lot easier. Mm -hmm. <laughs> so planning in advance for that. Learning disabilities are highly prevalent in mm -hmm. our population. So having supports in place and looking for those things can be helpful. So what should you be asking for? Your options are an IEP or a, for the most part, I'm generalizing, but a 504. So what type of interventions and what should you be pushing for as a parent of a child with either a FASD or prenatal drug exposure? Personally, it so depends on the child, but some big key things are supervision. They may require extra supervision to be able to maintain the boundaries that the school sets. One I always recommend is that recess and the opportunity for big muscle movement is never taken away. They mm -hmm. need that mental and physical break. Another one that I would highly recommend is no homework prior to middle or even high school. 
And that's because their brains are still developing and they are trying so hard to do as best as they possibly can in an environment that is a major challenge. By the time they get home, they are done. Mm-hmm. And a lot of contextual learning happens, right? If they learn things one way, they need to learn it that one way. And so if you as a parent are trying to teach it to them in a different way than how the teacher is teaching them, that causes a lot of confusion and anger and stress. And in our kids, the 20 minutes of homework that's sent home can take an hour and a half to two hours. And it's just not not helpful. Mm-hmm. So definitely recommend that they test for adaptive skills. When you're asking for them to be evaluated for an IEP or a 504, ask them to test executive function and adaptive skills because they don't always do that at the school setting. What do you mean by adaptive skills? Explain that to our audience. Adaptive skills is, again, the ability to navigate your community with safety. How do you adapt to your environment? How do you handle the day-to-day living activities that allow you to participate in society? And measuring those can be extremely helpful. Mm -hmm. Because it will usually show that the child is behind, and then there can be some interventions and supports that are put in place to help them. Things like OT, things like speech and language support for executive functioning, all of those things can be very helpful, provided that the provider understands FASD or prenatal exposure and what they're dealing with. Mm -hmm. Exactly. I'm going to interrupt here for just a second to give a brief shout out to Creating a Family's Interactive Training Support Group Curriculum for Foster Adoptive and Kinship Families. It is a terrific resource if you are someone who is involved with training any of these resource parents or involved with running a support group or attending a support group. I strongly urge you to check out this curriculum. It's intended to be a turnkey curriculum that makes it easy as possible to run a high quality training or support group. Check it out at creatingafamily.org and then hover over the training tab and then click on support group curriculum. So another way parents can advocate for their child And it's called different things in different states. Waivers, Medicaid waivers, they have different names and criteria by states. Can you talk to us some about what that is, the challenges of getting, first of all, the benefits of getting this waiver, and then the difficulty in getting the waiver? So again, every state, and this is very similar to the IEP program, every state has a different way of interpreting how they grant waiver services. And the waiver services can be different by state. So, uh, you know, looking first in your state to what waiver services are available. Waiver from what? Waiver services is how state disability services are referred to in general. So, for example, the Registry of Unmet Needs and Innovation Workers, right? Those are your waiver services in your state. This is how disability services are allocated is what it basically is. Right. And it's called waiver services. And then it's in each state, we'll call it something different. But I think most of them probably would know if you say waiver services for disability. Disability waiver services would be a way to look it up. I know there's some organizations like the ARC that really specialized in walking people through that process of getting waiver services. There are not FASD 
for prenatal substance exposure specific waivers in most states that I am aware of at this point. But some of the things you could get qualified for would be respite. Respite care is a big thing. If you have a child who moves as though driven by a motor, um, going back to that mm-hmm. criteria, you know, having some respite care as a family can be very helpful. Mm-hmm. Things like equine therapy can be covered. Camps can be covered. Sometimes housing, things like that can be covered for your loved one with a disability through that program. But again, each state's criteria is very specific and different. And so looking at where you might find that common ground with the waiver services, doing some research into that is really an area of great advocacy for parents, because once you have those waiver services, it can also help you access disability benefits down the road once they're an adult. Exactly. And so it's especially important if you think that your child will need supportive services into adulthood. This is one way to get that. I know a number of states, again, as Jen has just said, it's different from each state, but I know a number of states, the waiting list is huge. We're talking many, 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 many years. We're not talking, you know, six months. We're not talking six years sometimes. We're talking even longer than that. And as far as I understand, most states allow you to be putting the child on the waiting list, even as they're a child. Yes. So... There are some reasons why you might want to act sooner rather than later. Why are people with fetal alcohol spectrum disorders or prenatal substance exposures not automatically included? Why do they sometimes have a hard time meeting the criteria? In many cases, the criteria is set by IQ. So that can be absolutely a barrier. You know, we know, for example, that in people with FASD, the vast majority of people with an FASD have an average to above average IQ. Mm -hmm. So that's not the area of impairment for them. But to access services in many states, that is a cutoff. And I know there's a lot of states that are moving away from that. But again, it's a state by state thing. So that's part of it. And then I think the other piece is that, you know, we've done a lot of looking at how do we prevent drug exposure? How do we prevent alcohol exposure? You know, Mm -hmm. that's really been, particularly in the FASD space, the majority of federal funding and even state funding Mm -hmm. has gone towards prevention. What we've overlooked in that funding and in that policymaking are the people who are living with that disability. Yeah, I couldn't agree with you more. To me, there's absolutely no competition between prevention and support for the individuals Mm -hmm. who are living with the damage caused by prenatal substance exposure. It's not a competition. Who could argue against prevention? That's obviously. But we do need services for those people who are the unintended victim of substance abuse disorders, including alcohol. Well, and I think it's too... If people with FASD and prenatal substance exposure were visible and represented in our communities when we're talking about disability, if people with FASD were known to be as common, you know, is known to be as common as autism or Down syndrome or, you know, Mm -hmm. any of the other disabilities that we know very well. Mm-hmm. What would that do for prevention efforts? How would that impact prevention efforts? Absolutely. Absolutely. And I think that's a question we need to be asking is, you know, I don't think they're mutually exclusive programs. I don't think they're separate. No, they need to be tied together. They are tied together. 
And then looking too at the way the language of prevention is used and what impact that might have on the people with that disability. How does a person with FASD feel when they're told they're preventable? That's an interesting point. I have not thought of that. So this is where we have some thinking, I think, really to do on how do we give appropriate messaging and support, more importantly, support for pregnant people who may have a substance use disorder, may have an alcohol use disorder, or maybe, you know, just a parent who's pregnant and they realize, oh my gosh, I was pregnant and I went for that girl's weekend. I, you know, was at that event where I drank and my child may be exposed. How do we make it a safe space for them to be able to disclose that information so that their child can benefit from having an early and accurate diagnosis. Because there are programs out there for people with prenatal alcohol exposure and prenatal substance exposure that are evidence-based to support their needs as they grow. But if you can't get access to it because we don't know what's going on, therein lies some of the problems. So yeah, mm-hmm. it's it's a fascinating... Yeah. <laughs> It is. It's more complex than you think. Yes, creating a family is in the midst of trying to get a training evidence base right now that would help parents and child welfare staff be better able to know how to help these kids thrive. Hey, guys, have you heard about our free courses? They are in our online education center. They are free to you as a gift from the Jockey Bing Family Foundation. They're supporting us in being able to offer you these free courses. There's 12 of them. They come with a certificate of attendance if you need it. You may not. They're terrific courses. Check them out at bit.ly slash JBF support. That's B-I-T dot L-Y slash J-B-F support. All right. The last advocacy I want to talk about, and arguably it might even be the most important, is that is what can we do to get the FASD Respect Act passed? First of all, tell us what it is and then tell us what we can do. Even if you don't have a child that you think is impacted, this matters for all of us. These people, some of them children, some of them adults, exist and we need this support. So go ahead. So Just to start off with, federal funding right now for FASD consists of $11 million at the CDC for surveillance and prevention. There is $30 million at NIAAA, which is the National Institute of Alcohol and Alcoholism, and they changed the name and I still can't get it straight in my head, but $30 million in research dollars looking at FASD. There is a $1 million pilot program at HRSA to look at prevention and diagnosis. That's it. If you compare and contrast that with any other issue we're facing as a country, that's a drop in the bucket. Any authorization for programs that might support knowledge translation between research and practice, so taking all that great research we've done and putting it into practice. We so need that. Well, that's all expired. It's gone. It doesn't exist, <laughs> right? <laughs> there is great research. Yes, it may be being done on animals, but we have can learn a lot. And some of it's done in humans. We need to, yes, go ahead. <laughs> so the, yeah, the, the knowledge translation piece, any funding that was there or any statutes that were there to support authorization for that have expired long since. 
um, there used to be a center for excellence for FASD that worked on that knowledge translation piece between research and practice. That went away. Why? Because the authorization expired and because the agency that it was housed in didn't understand how it connected to their prevention efforts uh, and FASD and prenatal drug exposure are such nuanced topics. They don't fit neatly into a bucket. Mm -hmm. They don't fit neatly into a neurodevelopmental disability because they're also physical and they're Mm -hmm. also mental health. And they're also like they they flit across all these categories. So finding a home can be a challenge. So that went away. There used to be funding that went to states to support work in states and have a state coordinator on FASD and really push things forward, taking that knowledge translation piece that the Center for Excellence did and putting it into practice in states. That expired. So what the FASD Respect Act is, is reauthorization of those programs, but looking at prenatal substance exposure in all forms, FASD and prenatal substance exposure, and reauthorizing those programs and reinvigorating them and kind of relabeling them with what we know now mm-hmm. about FASD as opposed to what we knew back in the 90s when this legislation was initially passed. And yeah. so last legislative session, we introduced the FASD Respect Act and it came this close to getting passed. I know. <laughs> yeah. So guys, we we can do this again. We were close and and it's typical that you have to work. It gets really close one year, and you don't push it across the the goal line until the next year. So yeah, if you were talking to, and you are talking to an audience of people <laughs> who care, what do you want them to do? What action do you want people to take? So here's where I pull out my TikTok dance, and it's a shame this isn't on video. Otherwise, you could see it. Every state has two senators that represent the entire state and one representative or one congressperson that represents the area in which they live. What we would like you to do is reach out to your two senators. Here comes the TikTok dance and one rep. (laughs) You can't see it. It's far more funny on screen. (laughs) We need you to reach out to your two senators and your one representative and ask them to support or co-sponsor the FASD Respect Act. And here's how we do that. On our website, on FASDunited.org, under the policy page, there's a button for the FASD Respect Act. If you click on that link, it will take you to a, here's step one, here's step two, here's step three, in setting up a Zoom meeting with your legislator. And here's a template for how to get the meeting. Here's documents to send to them on the impact of FASD and prenatal exposure in your state. And then here's who you can contact at FASD United to set up a practice call to help you talk through what you want to say to your legislator when you meet with them. And also, do you want to schedule to have some experts there with you? Do you want somebody from FASD United there with you on the call? Do you want somebody from creating a family there on the call? Well, I would defer to you. (laughs) (laughs) It is a great way to put policy into action and take some actionable steps to get this done. And, you know, in the past, we used to ask for people to write a letter, write an email, write a letter. And that is an easy thing to do. However, in the past, when we asked that, the most co-sponsors we ever got for this legislation were nine between the House and Senate. Since we've asked people to start doing these Zoom meetings, last legislative session, we had 74 co-sponsors in the House and 10 in the Senate. 
So this method works and it works on many levels because we may end up not meeting with the senator or meeting with the congressperson. We might end up meeting with their legislative assistant. But guess who goes on to be a senator or a congressperson? My experience is that I almost never get to meet with the representative. Yes, senators almost never. But who do they take their information from? Their staff and their staff is keeping track of how many people are asking for this. And so don't be discouraged if you only talk with their aid, particularly for the senator. Absolutely. And, you know, we recommend, too, that if you have a question or you get stuck, just call us. Pick up the phone. We're very old school that way. Pick up the phone and call us. Um, <laughs> we want to help. You can get straight through to me. And I'm happy to help with that, too. My associate, Chris, who works with me on policy, I'm going to give out his email address. And you can email him directly and, and get things set up. And that's melfi, M-E-L-F-I, at fasdunited.org. We really want to be as accessible as possible to support people in doing this outreach because it's not one organization that can get this done. It's not one person that can get this done. If you want to make broad scale policy Mm -hmm. change, it takes everyone working together. And, you know, it doesn't matter if somebody's already talked to your senator in your state you can still talk to your senator in your state. They often are counting numbers. I mean, they, you know, the more people, the better. Absolutely. Absolutely. So the other thing you can do is on our website, we have a weekly newsletter that goes out on all things FASD and prenatal substance exposure. So any new research papers that are dropping, any conferences, trainings, things like that. It's called the weekly roundup. It's ran for like about, oh gosh, the last 15 some odd years. And you can sign up for that. And that'll give you information on what's going on globally on FASD and prenatal substance exposure. Mm -hmm. And then on our policy center, you can also sign up just for the policy updates. If all you're concerned about is the policy piece, hey, cool, we can update you on that and where things are going. I know Representative Ross from North Carolina just signed on, I believe, last week to be a supporter of the FASD Respect Act. And this is a bipartisan act. One of the few things that's bipartisan. (laughs) Exactly. There is nothing partisan or contentious in this. You know, the the language that we're using was language that was agreed upon last year by Senator Burr from North Carolina, who retired, and Senator Murray. So you've got your, you know, conservative and your liberal coming together to bring yeah, up this, this language. Truly bipartisan. And I will do a shout out for the FASD United newsletter. It is one of the better newsletters out there. And I'm a bit of a newsletter snob. And <laughs> it is one that I read every single time. In fact, There's probably, I'm behind on emails right now. I bet I have three of them and I won't get rid of them because I want to read them. (laughs) It's excellent. And you can again go to their website, which is fasdunited.org. Thank you so much, Jen Wistall with FASD United for talking with us today about how to advocate for your child who has prenatal substance exposure. I truly appreciate it. Well, thank you for having me, Don. I appreciate the time. Hopscotch Adoptions has been a long-term supporter of creating a family. We are so appreciative of their support, both of the resources we provide at creatingafamily.org as well as this show. Hopscotch is a Hague-accredited international adoption agency placing children from Armenia, Bulgaria, Croatia, Georgia, Ghana, Guyana, Morocco, Pakistan, Serbia, and Ukraine. 
They specialize in the placement of kids with special needs, including Down syndrome. They also specialize in kinship adoptions. They place kids throughout the U.S. and they offer home study services and post-adoption services to residents of North Carolina and New York.